Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Sharp Tech. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Thompson. Ben, how you doing? Doing well, doing well. Kids are back in school finally. Uh, the the, the uh, five-week marathon is over, so I'm, I'm feeling great. Oh, wow. Well, I'm in a good mood as well. Today's show is going to be a proper mailbag. I feel like we teased the mailbag last week. And then the DOJ intervened and sabotaged our plans. We spent like 35 minutes talking about antitrust and Google history. Today, we're just going to bounce all over the place. I, I do have I do have a follow-up question for you about the, the DOJ sort of tech stuff, or just sort of like mm-hmm. antitrust in general. So the impression I get from you is, and I think this maybe applies to some people who, who are, are, are cheering for this case, is mm-hmm. a real default sort of assumption that it's true and right and good because tech companies are so big. And so thank good, thank good to someone who's going after them. Is that sort of a fair characterization of your sort of viewpoint and default position? Um, It's fair to a degree. I think there are – one of the things that's interesting to me is that people in big tech – think that everybody who cares about antitrust has it out for big tech specifically, when I think in reality, the issue is that historically in this country, there's been a a movement to keep all companies from getting too big and too powerful. And that's sort of the principle that underlies our antitrust laws. And so it's not, I, I have nothing personal against anyone in big tech. But in general, I, I do think that like reanimating some of the laws that, you know, predominated for like 75 years would be a good and healthy thing for society. Yeah, I think that's a useful distinction to make because I agree like there is a certain like a, a, a traditional sort of a tradition in American politics that being super big, like just having really big entities involved in the daily lives of, of Americans is not something that that we like and we we want to sort of happen. And mm-hmm. I think that's fine and healthy. I think the I mean I just sort of thinking about this over the weekend. The the trouble I have when it comes to analyzing this is like it often feels like once you actually dig into the details, it's like, well, this isn't actually a violation, right? And, and I think this applies I, I think honestly it probably applies to a lot of the app store stuff. Which I personally, you know, I feel particularly strongly just because I, you know, I came up through the app ecosystem. I'm sort of like familiar with that. But I can certainly see publishers and things like that feeling the same way about Google. And there being a lot of frustration about this. And I feel like there's a real tendency in this debate for people to end up talking past each other where it's just like, hey, you don't actually like care about the law as it is. Like, where's the actual harm? And it's like, you're just defending big companies. You don't like, you, 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 know, <laughs> yeah. you, you love, love tech or whatever it might be. And I don't know, I just think it sort of reiterates the point that we discussed on the, on the last episode, which is it's one thing to have a, a political impulse against bigness, but the way that political impulse was realized a century ago was by passing laws. And right. I think the misplace here, at least again, I'm mostly familiar with tech. I'm not familiar with other cases. My, my my assumption, instinct, which may or may not be right or wrong, is that in a lot of other cases, I think you know, I've read a little bit about things like healthcare and hospitals, like mm-hmm. where you're talking about 
actual monopolization of like physical resources and assets in like a particular market, which is like what the antitrust laws were about. And I just think digital markets, if you feel that way, then you re- really the, the push needs to be for new and different laws as opposed right. to, you know, I, I think that's where I, you know, the, 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 there's a, the, where there's a mismatch of sort of expectations and what should happen. And for me, I would say there's a two pronged push. I think on one hand, enforce the laws we have in a bunch of different industries like hospitals, for instance, where consolidation is out of control and harms like individual consumers. But at the same time, I think what consistently offends you, <laughs> offend may be a little bit too strong, but like it's it's slightly incoherent to apply the laws that we have to some of these aggregators and the power that they accrue and try to f- sort of fit them in the typical monopoly box and we're going to need to sort of rework the the broader framework to address some of the core issues there right and and the other thing that i think is a challenge is it's i mean this is going to sound like a blatant sort of tech defender but like Mm. the consumer gain from tech in a lot of these companies is really massive right the fact we get access to a tool like google for free and you say, oh, yeah, they use that, you know, they can do that because they advertise, they're abusing the advertising space and blah, 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 blah. It, still, at the end of the day, right, like, what's what's the goal here, right? And I, I do feel like there would be, it almost be more honest to be like, yeah, actually, Google, you get a ton of benefit from it. You know, in all these sort of tech companies, there's huge consumer benefits. And we are going to limit that because we think, you know, there's a principle about being too big and having too much power even at the cost of consumer welfare, right? And and this sort of applies to a bunch of things. Like you talk about like the globalization debate generally, right? If you actually do the calculations, comparative advantage and free trade, like you're going to generally, that's almost stacking the deck in a certain way. When you offer your pushback, like, yeah, that might be true, but we actually think- We should still do it. Right, exactly, exactly. Which may or may not be true, but I do think there is room to be sort of honest about some of the trade-offs here. And- I, I think there might still be the political impulse anyway, right? Don't come out and say, oh, consumers are going to be – like, this goes to the privacy thing. We would have mm-hmm. more privacy if we had better competition laws, like, which is, I, I just don't – I actually think it would go the opposite direction, right? <laughs> but let's – I think there's – I think this works to the big company's advantage where – you know, they can point out real benefits. Totally clear benefits, easy for everyone to understand and articulating some of the harms just requires more nuance and a sort of a, a, a leap to a secondary and tertiary level. And I remember in my antitrust class in law school, I was downgraded. I thought I was going to get an A and I got a B plus because on my exam, I was talking about Amazon and arguing that, look, Amazon is really great for consumers, but the market they have allows them to abuse sellers and makes it harder to start like a medium sized business to compete with them because they have so much market share that like they can just undercut everybody on price. And then if you want to do business with Amazon, they have tremendous amounts of leverage and so ultimately, it leads to less variety in the marketplace and and different sorts of harms to consumers than, you know, typical like a monopolist raising prices and just screwing everybody. And that's harder for people to understand. But I think even in the time since I was in law school to now, more people are 
warming to the idea that this is more complicated than meets the eye. Well, wait, so were you saying you deserve the B plus or you're still bitter? About no, it? I, I'm bitter about it because the <laughs> professor, I'm like, look, this is a fairly nuanced argument, but I clearly understand what's going on here. And I think he he was assuming that I just didn't really understand like the consumer welfare test or whatever. And, um, I I understood it. It was just insufficient in my eyes. I have a similar story from business school where I made the point about what this is when Google sort of exited China. And I just sort of observed they were getting their rear end kicked in China and they, you know, dressed it up in this sort of very principled sort of stand. And I'm like, well, there's probably a little bit of a, a little bit of B here. And the professor was a huge Google fan and just, just like, <laughs> he's like, no, this like, you're, you We're don't blaming understand China. Here. Yeah, no, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and I, I same thing. I gotta be, I was very annoyed. I'm like, I feel like I understand this space pretty well. Uh, but yeah, professors. Totally. I was like, look, this is one of the few classes where I've paid full attention the entire time. <laughs> I was not engaged. I, I was not a basketball <laughs> reference in the back of the back row. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, with that out of the way, let's get to mailbag here. The first question I have is from John. He says, what are your thoughts about on-demand grocery delivery and its long-term viability as a business model? Startups like Getter, Gorillas, etc. proliferated during the lockdown when there were few alternatives. As we leave the pandemic behind, can they sustain increased costs and possibly reduced demand? What do you think, Ben? Well, uh, with the caveat that I do not know a ton about these businesses and uh, and in frankly, in general, with the more appropriate caveat that some of my predictions about the way the pandemic will play on the wrong one turned out to be wrong. And, in a, you know, and I feel very guilty because uh, now every tech executive that lays off employees is like, well, we thought our business would be sustaining longer. And I'm like, wait, uh, dude, this, this, I was <laughs> kind of like your that. hands. <laughs> yeah. For the record, that applied primarily to e-commerce specifically, which, you know, because e-commerce, you have this upward going slope and it's like, well, if it jumps up, that's where we were going to be in five to six years anyway. So why are we, why would we sort of roll back? Turned out we did roll back. So I think the, you know, that argument certainly applied to e-commerce. I, w- I was wrong, but I am skeptical of, and I think I always have been of startups in the space of s- some of these delivery things. And, and, you know, groceries are just tough in general. I wrote about this back when Amazon acquired Whole Foods. And I think my analysis of the case was right. Uh, what I think, you know, I think in retrospect, I'm not sure how well that's worked, but I think it hasn't worked out is sort of a, a, a validation of some of the questions that came up in that case, which is when it comes to like e-commerce, like you go back to Amazon's initial insider on books, right? Books, mm-hmm. uh, you have a known list of what they are. It, like it's either that book or it's not, right? You can stock all the books in the world in a way that gives you advantage over regular bookstores and you can reach anyone because you're sending it through the mail. And this was a a product that was perfect for e-commerce. And everything about books is like the exact opposite of groceries, right? You know, groceries, there's wide variation, even with a particular... Now, for some types of groceries, like the packaged processed foods, yeah, it is what it is. But when it comes to anything fresh, there's high variation, right? You don't you don't know what it is. There's high spoilage, right? If if mm-hmm. stuff doesn't sell, go out the door soon enough, you have to throw it away. And there's real logistical challenges in delivering it to your door and keeping it fresh and not having to go bad. And it's just a completely different product than books. Could not be more different. And I think that's a reason why 
Amazon always struggled in this space. You go back to the dot-com era and things like WebVam and stuff like that. It's always been a big challenge because you have to build up all this infrastructure to get stuff to your door without it going bad. And if you don't have the scale, you're just going to have these huge inventory problems and spoilage and stuff going bad. And so where the Whole Foods acquisition made sense was you need to have the base of grocery stores have solved this by, number one, by keeping everything in one spot. They can have better control over their mm-hmm. – like they have refrigerators, right? Very useful, it turns out, right? But then people come through and people do the picking for you. You, you don't have to, like, specify – this quality of fruit or vegetables or meat or whatever it might be. And then you get the the volume of traffic going through, you get the inventory turnover that sort of makes your, makes the economics make sense. And then on that, you can layer on the e-commerce where it's sort of additive to an, an in-store model. And I think that was in broad strokes, the idea, but there was questions like the best e-commerce models, like an Amazon warehouse that whole thing is tuned to e-commerce, right? No shopper is going right. to an Amazon warehouse and picking stuff out. That, like it, To create a user experience and flow for a grocery store or a department store is totally different than what you need for e-commerce where you, like, they have these robots flying around and pickers and all, all this stuff. You know, it just, it's crazy. It's a completely different experience, and that's important and essential to their success and is a reason why other companies struggled in e-commerce. Like go back to like the Walmart's initial challenges here. Just picking didn't work. So like we'll have to set up our own network, but then that was separate from their network. It's like, well, what advantages do we have? Like, you know, it, it was just a sort of a big mess. Walmart though is and always has been the most interesting to me for groceries because. Ah, okay. And I think where they did, they got a lot of success during the pandemic. And uh, I should have looked this up before. I've, I have, I need to check out actually the recent earnings. But I think the sort of hybrid pickup model is very, very compelling where you – so Walmart, they have – they're very large. They have, they have a ton of stuff in there. They have you know a lot of traffic that goes through them. So they have all the turnover. And then this yep. idea that you can go in and they'll have pickers and they'll get all your stuff for you and you just pull up and you put it in your trunk and then you go home I think is uh, a model that makes a lot of sense that accommodates the unique – aspect of groceries and why they're difficult from an e-commerce perspective while layering on sort of a level of convenience that that makes it pretty compelling. That makes a lot more sense to me than the delivery model where I I have never understood. I mean, you've you've got all these businesses where they were able to offer competitive prices because they had venture funding subsidizing their discounts to keep prices like, you know, reasonable. But to the question here, like the costs are inevitably going to increase and that will affect demand. And we're also not in a pandemic anymore. So it's like, how does this business actually work? Now, if you're talking about curbside groceries, like I asked my wife about this before we came on to record and I complain about it because she uses grocery delivery services and it's always like 20% more expensive or whatever. And she said, well, what about the opportunity cost that comes with like my time going to grocery shop or our time because we usually go together and that's a fair point. And Andrew's like, those are our dates. What are you talking about? (laughs) If you can split the difference and have the groceries sitting there uh, like outside the store, that actually makes a lot of sense to me and seems like it would be a lot more sustainable than the delivery systems. 
Yeah, I mean, I think everyone has been trying to figure this out for a long time because it's such a huge portion of commerce generally, right? I mean, Amazon will always say, oh, we're a very small part of, to- of total of total retail, right? And they're lumping everything into retail, but a big part of that is grocery. And, uh, and yeah, I think just figuring out there's so many problems that are already solved by existing grocery stores. And so it's the one sort of area where sort of working backwards from that you know, seems to make some sort of sense. Now you have other companies like Instacart, for example, that are trying to layer on top of existing grocery stores and having pickers going in. But then, I mean, now you have the opposite problem, right? Is the store formulated for that in a way that mm-hmm. a warehouse is formulated for e-commerce? And I think there's just this real tension between, you know, the efficiency of having a dedicated e-commerce entity versus the inventory challenges that come with grocery. And because of that, I am more optimistic about more fully integrated services, whether that be a Walmart or to what extent, you know, if Instacart can get fully integrated into grocery stores, which I think they're, they're sort of trying to do, then that that is maybe that, that's maybe more compelling. These other startups that are trying to layer on top of in sort of like a modular way existing stores and we're going to go in and do it. I'm I'm pretty skeptical that that's going to be an ongoing uh, model that makes sense post pandemic. I'm skeptical as well. Do you use grocery grocery delivery services in Taiwan? No, uh, they they do exist, I think. But I mean, Taiwan, like I, you know, it's a bit. You know, I'm in a big city. It's very convenient, walkable. Usually, just buy stuff and then make it. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. there's grocery stores like like around. So it's more of a sort of like you know classical European sort of model where the grocery store is nearby. Yeah, you'll just get go food pick and it up you, and you make it. Yeah. And we have a relatively small refrigerator. And to be honest, that maybe that does give me a less clear viewpoint on the space. But I mean, the American model of, you know, people live in suburbs, they go to the huge store and they stock up in their big SUVs and carry it back. And then they have like 14 freezers in the, in the garage. <laughs> uh, you know, that is kind of the American solution to the pain of going to the grocery store is just do it once a week, right? Or or once every two weeks and get a whole (laughs) bunch of stuff and stock up. And that does maybe to an extent work better for e-commerce because you're kind of like lumping all those costs of delivery into one bit, but it also reduces the value because it's like, well, it's one trip a week, right? And, you know, there, I still like, you know, something about food. I still like to see my vegetables before I pick them out. I still like to see the fruit, whatever. Yeah. And that's, you know, maybe that will change over time, but I think the space is tough in general. And so I do give the advantage to, Again, I think Walmart's the most interesting thing here, just because they do have the combination of they have the physical assets, they do have the scale, and I think it is, you know, this whole omni-channel sort of thing where, you know, a mixture of in-store and delivery does not make Mm -hmm. sense for a lot of stuff because the warehouse model is just superior, but it may make sense specifically for groceries. Okay, yeah. I I do not like paying another human to go out and do basic tasks for me it makes me feel like a weak millennial so i'm not a fan of the grocery delivery system yeah you're, you're you're all about equal you know equality we're on the same page take down the big tech companies <laughs> i want to pick up my exactly. own groceries i could go pick up my own goddamn groceries okay it's it's really not that hard um but my wife will continue to order from amazon fresh or whatever it is i mean the reality um, is your wife should probably be hosting this podcast about taxes she's the only one that seems to be interested <laughs> she, in it but yes. yes that's right she's a far more uh prolific adopter of tech than I am. Uh, Billy says, hi guys, very normie question for you. Love a good normie question. 
I've been seeing and hearing a lot of ads about non-Verizon or AT&T cellular networks, specifically Visible, which is all over the Bill Simmons podcast, and Mint Mobile, which has those ads where Ryan Reynolds is trying to be funny. My question is specifically about Visible, whose ad copy says it sits on the Verizon network, but at a discounted price. Quite simply, how does this work? Why am I paying X dollars a month for Verizon when there's a cheaper option on Verizon's network? Is the data speed ramped down in in exchange for the discounted price and Verizon is just selling excess network capacity? I thought you couldn't do this under the whole net neutrality principle. Excited to hear Ben's explainer. Do you have an explainer for him, Ben? Well, I think part of being a normie is you shouldn't get too excited about, uh, you know, whatever explainer I might come up with. You're supposed to say, you know, <laughs> too dirty, too too locked in. Uh, but I appreciate, mm. I do appreciate that that extra sentiment at the end. Um, so the way I don't know about these deals specifically, but broadly speaking, the way these these deals work is. Verizon has a huge amount of capacity, right? And they need to build up because they need to handle sort of peak events. And these are, they're making huge fixed cost investments in their network so that when it's super busy and there's tons of people using it during like primetime hours or during a big game or whatever it might be, a big event, they can handle it without the service degrading. And you go back to like when the iPhone first came out, it dramatically upped the use of data and AT&T's network would just fall down all the time. And you know, that was just, it wasn't ready for that sort of influx of data that was prompted by this device that suddenly made using data much more compelling. And you go back to the iPhone introduction, it was, uh, you know, an iPod, uh, a touchscreen iPod. Everyone cheers. It was a revolutionary mobile phone. Everybody cheers. It was an internet communicator. There's kind of a little cheer. And I was like, what the, what's <laughs> <Murmur>. that? <laughs> Turns out that's everything, right? That was the whole thing and what was transformational about it. And it took a long time for the networks to sort of build up the capacity to sort of handle that. At the same time, this is a fixed cost investment, right? Which means they need that investment to be being leveraged. The more that it's being used, the more customers they have, the more they can spread out that cost across all their customers. And so there's a real challenge where if you're building for maximum capacity, the rest of the time you're sort of overbuilt and that's bad. Like just from a a business perspective, you made all this fixed cost investment. It's the same thing we see in like chips, for example, right? Intel's margins Mm -hmm. are destroyed this quarter because they have too much capacity relative to how much they're selling. And and that has to all be layered on the chips that are still being sold. And so their, their profits go way down. So the solution here. And I actually think it's a great solution, to be honest, is uh, they sell network capacity to other carriers like like this visible, right? But there's priorities attached to those deals. So when the network is fully loaded, Verizon data will always go through first. And you're gonna get a worse mm. experience on visible. And they have, I think there's, I, I don't, I think there's five tiers, and it's like gated. It, it, and you see this with some of the the all you can eat sort of data deals. It's like you know sometimes performance may be degraded. Like that's what's happening is you're on like a lower once you pass through whatever cap they have, uh, sure. you're on a lower tier of prioritization. Where hey, if the network can handle it, sure you can still get your great performance of data. But if the network is overloaded the Verizon stuff's going to go through first. And Mm -hmm. I think, honestly, I think this is a good customer positive solution. If it's really important to you to have the best data performance at all times, no matter how stressed the network is, then pay the pricier Verizon deal. If you're willing to sacrifice performance, 
when it's really busy in exchange for having good performance 90% of the time, 95% of the time, and you pay half as much a month, then go with something like Visible. And this is it's sort of like it, this is a way for Verizon to price discriminate access to their network without sort of hurting the Verizon brand, right? Because if, if they mm. just treated everything the same all the time and visible and whatever... And then people are like, wow, Verizon's kind of shitty. Right, because you don't think about the quality <laughs> of a network except when it's bad, right? And so Verizon mm-hmm. doesn't want their service to ever be bad, whereas visible, you're like, well, I am only paying $20 a month for it. <laughs> I, mean, I guess it, I, you get what you It's honestly brilliant. It. Yeah, I, I come away from this conversation also a perfectly legible explainer there to this normie's ears. So thank you for that. It all makes perfect sense. Um, And I come away from it feeling much better about visible as like a product. Yeah. And now maybe there should be more transparency in explaining about what's happening here. Like, why are you getting a cheaper deal? I think people do sort of intuitively know, look, it's on the Verizon network and it's half as much. There's got to be a catch here. <laughs> there is a catch. This is sort of the catch. Now, as far as net neutrality, so number one, the net neutrality principles that were passed, the tail end of the Obama administration that were you know infamously rolled back by the Trump administration. Uh, I think this is actually a good example of why, you know, I don't think it applied to this situation specifically, but I do think this is a good example of why network prioritization is a good thing, right? We're getting more efficient use of bandwidth. Customers can select into the level of performance that they want. So if it's more important to save money, they can do that. If it's more important to always have good wireless performance, they can do that. I think that's a positive outcome and sort of the, you know, the way the market working as it should to get optimal performance out of what is a very, very expensive investment. We want Verizon building more towers. We want to Mm -hmm. have guaranteed performance if you're willing to pay for it. And we also want them to be able to make money doing so. And I think this is actually a great outcome of that. You know, the, you know, the net neutrality stuff is, was a crazy debate because it got completely wrapped up into Trump and no one was actually talking about the, the details. Obviously I'm a clear supporter. I don't want any discrimination based on type of content, right? I don't want them looking yeah, in and saying that should be policed aggressive, right? But I do want this. And this is always what has made bandwidth questions fundamentally different than other questions because we're in a world where bandwidth and the need for it continues to increase right now everyone's Mm -hmm. on tiktok and instagram guess what that uses a ton of data because it's you're streaming video sort of constantly and we want that we want in continued investments into data and and you're going to get more investments from verizon at&t if they can discriminate based on these sort of levels that's a good thing actually right now I am fully in favor of some sort of law that makes clear you can't discriminate based on content. You can't pick and choose what goes through and what doesn't. But the general idea that we want prioritization within a network, I think, is a good thing. Because it incentivizes them to build out their network and make it better and more efficient for everyone. That's right. right. That's exactly right. Yeah, well, and and as we talk through this, what I like about this model is it creates more choices for consumers, and particularly as we head further and further into the 21st century, like everyone needs a cell phone. Everyone needs a cell phone plan, and it's kind of a crappy place to be when there are basically like three providers you could choose from to, to exist in like the modern era. And so if you can come up with cheaper plans that are, maybe a C plus or a B minus relative to like an A on AT&T. That's a good thing for everybody. And it's, it's, 
good for the the market as a whole. So uh, I applaud Visible, and I've not seen the Ryan Reynolds ads, but I'll keep an eye out for them going forward. Yeah, and there's 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 a few weird things in this market. Like for example, the cable companies bought a bunch of Spectrum that they later sold to Verizon, but in exchange, I think they have a higher prioritization. Um, mm-hmm. I, don't quote me on this. I think I'm just trying to remember what I've read in the past. So I actually think the best options for if you don't want to buy one of the big three, but you want on their network is like your spectrum deal. Cause they're on Verizon, but I think they're, they're relative, like relative to the other ones, they have a better in the prioritization stack or something. Like that. I don't know. There's lots of complications that go into this. I do think more transparency would be a good thing here, right? I, like yeah. maybe that is an opportunity for regulation. Just be super clear. What are you paying for? Like, like, where <laughs> yeah, are you, you in the priority stack? Right. That I, It's an important point on the visible front in particular, because it's like, I, the lower prices are great, but you should be kind of clear about the the drawbacks. Right. And this bit, though, you make a very good point, which is we really do want heavy investment here. It's a big like this is this stuff's tough and it's tough because you have to like refresh it every like you go to 4G to 5G. It's a whole new cycle of reinvestment. And, you know, the problem with like you go back like T-Mobile and Sprint, Sprint made a disastrous bet on sort of YMAX. They were sort of out of the game. So you had two really big guys. You had T-Mobile kind of there, and then Sprint was a disaster. There's an aspect where I actually, that was an uncomfortable merger, but I think it's one that made sense because I would rather have three strong entries than sort of like two strong entries and then a couple of sort of struggling ones. And, you know, but but you can understand, just you look at it, you're like, oh, that's bad. We're consulting from four to three. But when you layer in this, we really want to continue to drive make sure that there's heavy incentives to invest because you need ongoing investment, then it it becomes a much sort of closer question. I actually went to the other side where I thought that that was a, that was a merger that was uncomfortable, but I thought was an appropriate one. And, you know, there is a broader thing too about people are like, why doesn't Apple build a network? Why would Apple build a network? They have companies tripping over themselves to spend billions of dollars to make iPhones sure. work better. Like that, that's a great thing to sit on top of that. And, uh, and, you know, Apple has certainly benefited from that over, over the years. And what is, is one of the more, you know, brilliant strategic moves that they've done is getting other people to do all their work for them. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of the NBA at college basketball, people pushing for the NBA to have its own development league and everything, including people in the NBA itself. Why would you do that? College basketball is sitting there with like a billion dollar framework, free promotion for everybody. It does not make sense to try to spend all that money yourself. If I were an owner, I'd be pretty pissed off about it. So yeah, it's not just that they're paying for player development. They're also paying to sort of eliminate mistakes because you see if guys can can perform sure. or not. And they're also paying to make stars because if a guy who you know wins a national title at you're North Carolina or whatever it comes in the NBA. He's a much bigger deal than some random guy on a G league team. Exactly. And um, there were ethical complications like five or six years ago when guys weren't getting paid, at least officially. Yeah. Now all of those are out the window. (laughs) Um, Sophie says a few episodes ago, you guys discussed the accident that the Tesla autopilot caused on the Bay bridge and said that despite causing this one accident, it's still pretty revolutionary technology that's going to be transformative in the future. So number one, uh, I think that was on Dithering, not on not on Sharp Tech. Uh, <laughs> number two, 
I always get when people. I, it's always disconcerting when people summarize what we said. I'm like, I don't think we said that, but anyhow, continue. Uh, well, I, I think it's a fair bet that it's going to be pretty revolutionary. How exactly that manifests is an open question right now. And so she asks, "How do you think passenger autonomous vehicle companies, parentheses Cruise, Waymo?" Will fare compared to companies like Neuro, which is using autonomous vehicles for use cases outside of passenger rides, or those that on an even smaller scale have created sidewalk bots, parentheses Coco. I'd love to hear your predictions about these types of companies and how you think they'll shake up the tech and auto industry. So Neuro, I believe, is an autonomous delivery vehicle company. Um and Coco, I, I saw their little carts. I've not ever seen one on a sidewalk, but I went and watched a video of them zooming around a go-kart track, What would you so. do if you encountered one? I mean, is there... Oh, well, so I... Right, maybe there's two questions. What would you do? And what would you want to do and not do? <laughs> I was going to say, what I would want to do is kick it over because I, I want to forestall it. the robot takeover as long as we can. Um, I love... The people in Philly who beat the crap out of that robot uh, five or six years ago, absolutely on the same page as those guys. Um, did you boo Santa Claus too? I did not boo Santa Claus. I just, I, you know, I, I, I like humans. We don't necessarily need to cede control to robots in every aspect of life. But what do you think of autonomous vehicles outside of um, the typical like Tesla autopilot model? Yeah, I've always been, I, I think just to go back to that discussion, I think what's interesting about the car space in general, I wouldn't be surprised if we rolled out autonomous driving everywhere now that actually the absolute number of accidents would go down. But the attention and fear of any one accident that involves autonomous is so sky high that there's Mm -hmm. a real, like, for better or worse, we've accepted there's going to be tens of thousands of accidents a year that are involve humans, right? And they don't move the needle. Whereas you get one accident with an autonomous car, and it's front page news. And that's just that's just the way that's just a reality that I think you need to accept. And this you've seen this, you know, in, in lots of places, you're going to see the same thing with AI. Like it just is a bigger deal when a computer is doing it. We have higher expectations for better or worse. And, you know, from your perspective, maybe for better. And, you know, it's just it, it's complicated. Like all this stuff is very, very complicated. Uh, sure. My, given that my assumption is I'm fairly skeptical of self-driving cars being like fully self-driving cars and there's like different levels of autonomy uh just because there's a there's a narrative story here and and narratives are powerful and like it's a big story when when they screw up and you know so i i'm skeptical just just, i Mm -hmm. think there's a and there's so many variables so many things can change you have different sorts of weather there's a reason why all these sort of uh the trials are in like phoenix arizona where it's like the weather's <laughs> always good or i didn't, always clear. I didn't realize that yeah That's the roads are very wide everything's well marked like it's like everything's a grid like it's it's the most boring place in the world to drive like my i mean my parents live there so i drive there a fair bit and i mm-hmm. can't stand it and it's also perfectly suited to <laughs> two cars now my this is sort of as i was reading this question in preparation of this podcast this sort of popped into my head which may or may not be true I think one of the things with electric vehicles, for example, I find the investment in electric for very large things to maybe not make a lot of sense, right? You have this real trade-off in battery density and weight and like just the number of like 
the cost to make them to the question to which they are recyclable or not, where I'm not sure it makes sense to have like battery powered planes, for example, right. Mm -hmm. Or like they're talking battery powered ships. Like the larger you get, the more stuff you're carrying, the more the trade-off makes sense for sort of the emissions that comes from a traditional, like the, the reason why, why carbon-based fuels are so powerful is because they're so efficient. Like you get so much power relative to the weight that you're carrying, you know? And so that makes sense for very large things. And so my sense is the real opportunity for electric is the smaller you go, the more compelling it is. And, you know, we mentioned Horace Deggio earlier in micromobility and this idea that can we shift to even smaller vehicles and can we change our environment so they're more compelling and more interesting? I like an electric scooter, for example, which I think is 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 a very sort of compelling sort of offering. And the smaller you are, the worse the trade-offs make sense as far as using internal combustion engines and the more mm. viable and practical it is to use batteries. And it's easy to get them close to a charger and plug them in and all these, all these sorts of things. I wonder if autonomy is going to go in the opposite direction. Where the larger you are, the more predictable your route is, the less variation you sort of encounter in your environment. And so there it actually makes more sense to have more autonomy. And so you know, I talked to John, John Ostrauer about sort of like the airline industry a couple weeks ago on, on Strachery. And, you know, there's a real pilot shortage issue. And, you know, as air, and so one thing air, uh, you know, airlines are doing is they're spending much more money on much larger planes because, like, we, we're not actually increasing the number of flights that much, but more people want to fly. So we need to carry more people at once. Well, another way to increase the number of flights, particularly to smaller, more far-flung places that would not have service normally is what if we only needed one pilot instead of two because the computer is so capable and it can fly it well. And obviously, you know, this is tricky because if flights already are like the autonomous vehicle and that when there's a crash, everyone freaks out, right? Even if yeah. like the relative number of deaths from the aero industry are way lower than cars, they get way more visibility because they're very dramatic and they kind of like work against people. I think it's like part of this, there's still a sense in people that, People should not be in the air. Right? It, it should <laughs> be unsafe. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly right. There's some confirmation bias anytime there's a plane crash. And I think that applies to so the autonomous. I think there's there's probably a similar thing where like this is unnatural. And because yeah. of that, there's going to be much more story about it. But at the same time, that is it's still it's fairly predictable, like what an airplane is doing, where it's going. There's less variables compared to a car where there's pedestrians and there's dogs running on the road and there's other cars and you never know what people will do. And so, like, and you go down the stack, well, I mean, you know, ships are obviously a, w would be a potential question. Uh, mm -hmm. You have trains. Like, trains are literally on rails. To what extent can uh, you go down to, like, trucks, right? Trucks on semi-highways. Yep. Like, it's more variables for sure, but fewer than being on, like, some random side road or something along that. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if autonomy actually is more viable and becomes more of a thing the larger and more predictable you are. And it's sort of like an inverse to the, the electrical thing. Uh, I'm not saying those two are related, it's just sort of interesting to think about that. They're kind of moving in opposite direction. Yeah. I mean, that's along the same lines that I was thinking where you could have autonomous trucks that had like a middle lane on the highway where only autonomous vehicles ran. And that seems like it's a lot more sustainable than trying to have like autonomous ubers zooming around a, a like downtown area where there's all kinds of complications they run into the other thing you could do is like long delivery routes you just have the autonomous vehicles all go to like 
certain shipping centers and then like once they're in the metro area like a a human goes and delivers them in the city but if you simplify that task i'm sure you could save a lot of money by streamlining the process with autonomous vehicles one other thing that is interesting about the trucking bit in particular is for a few years there when people were talking about autonomous driving that was sort of the focus of the you know techs taking all the jobs argument and the fear Mm -hmm. of sort of ai where, hey, you know, truck, trucking is like one of the biggest employers in multiple states, uh, you know, like what happens when all these people are out of a job? And then it's become very clear we're actually super short on truckers. <laughs> and so it's <laughs> I, I think that the uh, it's just going to I don't know. It, it, I just thought it, it's interesting how that has been forgotten. Now, AI is going to take all the jobs, you know, like our jobs, wherever it might be. Yeah. And the reality is using our resources more efficiently it's not just a sustainability thing. That's how economies grow, right? That's how you get more production generally, you know? So I think that the, the space is interesting and the intersection of those two bits is, is going to be interesting uh, in, in how they how they sort of interact. But yeah, you could envision a world where all the inner city stuff is super automated, is super like sort of built out, you know? And then this actually ties into what if we made our cities more you know, in the sort of horse edgy sort of walkable, thing, more walkable yeah. or, or electric cars and small, small cars. And there's a real shift in how that moves around, but that's obviously going to take a long time to sort of build out. I think one of the strengths of the U S system generally is ideally of different States and different cities, trying different things. And you'll sort of figure out the right mix that makes sense. I mean, the U S is just different. It's so like, I think it's hard for people not in the U S to understand just how freaking big the U S is. And that's mm-hmm. really, it's not just integral to a lot of these questions. You know, it goes to the country's character and lots of, you know, interesting, que- you know, that's just the way it's built out. And you have to work with that as it is, but hopefully that will, um, you know, lead to some new ways of approaching things. Yeah. Well, I, I do agree with you that on some level, if you're doing it in urban areas, there's going to need to be new infrastructure in place for some of this stuff to flourish. Let me give you one more example. Everyone always complains about, oh, where's the U.S. rail system, right? And you're like, oh, you know, as this big sort of deficiency. And the Mm -hmm. funny thing is, is actually the U.S. is one of the best rail systems in the world. The difference is our rail system is almost used completely for freight. Like they're they're like, you know, the reason why Amtrak's bad is in part because it's on freight lines and they have to defer to freight trains. Like it just, it's not a particularly great experience. But the total value of goods that are moved and transferred via the U.S. rail system is astronomical. I think it's one of the like one of the highest in the world. It's generally very profitable and it, it works quite well. And in the U.S., well, if cities are super far apart. Flying actually makes a lot of sense, right? You're not talking mm-hmm. about a 90-minute train ride. You're in the Northeast Corridor, sure, but you're talking about multiple hours for cities that on a map seem relatively close together. And that's actually an area where, and this is totally contrary to, to people's assumptions and conventional wisdom, the U.S. has actually found, in my estimation, a good balance between moving people by air and moving goods by, by train. And to the extent we can do that with autonomy, and with, with trucking and all these sorts of things, I think there's – I'm optimistic. I actually think we can sort of figure this out and get to a good place. Well, thank you for defending our rail system. And, you know, it's an unpopular take, but it I is. don't We're going to get a bunch of email. It, and you know what? Bring it on. 
I, I don't think Amtrak is as crappy as everyone else does. We were in a meeting a, a, a back in the fall and someone was kind of grumbling about Amtrak and I nodded along, but I've had a lot of good experiences on Amtrak. Well, the, and the, I, Northeast, the Northeast Corridor train is great, right? Like, of course, yeah. if, I, if I'm going between Philly and New York or down to D.C., of course I'm going to take the train, right? The, those cities are so much closer. Like, it was like, oh, we should have it in, like, b- between – you know, you put it in the Midwest. Like, oh, like there should be a train between Chicago and Minneapolis. It's like that's really far. <laughs> like, it's way <laughs> farther than people realize. It's like five hundred miles. And like, yeah. would you rather? Well, take and a- again, it's the opportunity cost. Like, do you want to take a seven-hour train from Chicago to St. Louis? Maybe it wouldn't be seven hours, but like, it it's substantial and meaningful. And if you can fly there in an hour, then, right? And the, uh, and the flights aren't going away. So the economic case for these things really falls apart. I think there's just a very romantic attachment to trains. That's actually a surprisingly strong part, I think, of U.S. infrastructure. Like trains mm-hmm. do make a lot of sense. They are much more efficient. And so devote as much capacity as you can to stuff that doesn't have a time premium attached to it and move that and then use the one that makes sense for people that do have a time premium. Like it, it, I would rather spend take an hour flight to Minneapolis than I would to sit on a train for seven hours or five hours or whatever it is. <laughs> Max says, when Netflix and Amazon began to produce their own content, they made lots of bold declarations about how different their developmental process would be compared to traditional Hollywood studios. Amazon famously allowed users to weigh in on series ideas and even to watch finished pilots and vote on which one of them should be greenlit. Similarly, much was made of Netflix's com- commitment to, quote, data-driven content development due to their trove of user data. And yet, it feels as though Netflix, Amazon, and Apple have all retreated to traditional Hollywood development and production practices. They have made far fewer data-driven proclamations. Their hit rates seem to be not any better than all the other Hollywood studios, and each of their content divisions are now run by executives who grew up in traditional entertainment companies. Based on your thesis that we will likely end up seeing content makers separated from content sellers, do you see any role for tech innovation in the development and creation of entertainment content? Right now, I'd argue that the process is not substantially different than it was during the silent film era. Do you have thoughts, Ben? It's probably overstating it to say there's been no changes in production since the the silent film era. But by and large, I, I think the observation is correct. We've seen a lot less chatter about sort of, you know, data-driven development, which I think I was always a little more skeptical of. I remember we used to talk about this on Exponent, and, and um, it, I, I think my, my, my co-host was a little more enthusiastic about it. And I always... HBO has always been the counterpoint where they're so famously they're more involved than anyone else. And you and mm-hmm. you look at it and their hit rate seems to be so good. And that continues to sort of seem to be the case now. And I, you know, to your point, I think that's kind of great, right? It's good to know that there's still room in space for auteurs. Is that is that how you say it? Like the idea, yeah. like someone <laughs> like they, they could figure out what is compelling and what's going to resonate. And that is and that's something that's valuable and worth paying for. I would imagine there is still data is used a lot when it comes to like the filler content and just stuff that people are looking for and they just want to be on in the background. 
uh, you know, one could argue, I certainly know that people who get attached to certain shows argue that they wish Netflix would be less data-driven in that they wouldn't kill shows that are not getting sort of sufficient users or pick up and build stuff up over time. Um, so I don't know. I think the other context to this is as audiences have gotten way more nicheified. And, you know, it's not part of the reason why the most compelling streaming content is things like Friends and, and The Office and Seinfeld is they started out with these huge bases of tens of millions of people watching it together on a Thursday night. And there's this broad cultural familiarity and memory of, you know, of this sort of content that gives it lasting resonance and power sort of in the long run. I also do think this is a reason why I, I continue to be skeptical and critical of Netflix's all at once release strategy and not trying to build any sort of cultural resonance around their content. It's like, it feels like playing on hard mode, right? Like there's, mm -hmm. there's all this, all these content makers out there begging to hype up your show because they want to produce more content. They want you to, to succeed so that they can write more reviews and discussion articles about it and drive more clicks and all that sort of thing. And it just seems like an own goal to not even want to take advantage of that. But you know, I, I, I I don't know. I think by and large, I do agree with with this viewer's viewpoint, particularly when it comes to big hits and resonant stuff. But there are tons of confounding factors about the viewership market that, you know, makes it hard, hard to say for sure what's happening. But uh, I do think there's a real skill in making something compelling. And I, that's probably a different skill than in distributing and selling. And that's one of the reasons. Yeah, I do think there there will be a return to this sort of bifurcation. Yeah. I agree that it's kind of nice that, you know, as tech is taking over every aspect of life, there are certain things that you have to do yourself or experience yourself to really get like the full effect. Like one stupid example is like if you take a picture of a sunset, it can be a nice picture, but it's nowhere near as cool as like watching a sunset, like as great as iPhone cameras have become and everything else. Like you're just not getting the full experience. And so I want that to be true for development in the entertainment industry. I do worry, though. <laughs> you do worry that you're you're that 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 this is more of a want than actually is. <laughs> well, I mean, because we've talked about it on here, like AI is going to be able to generate video in the not too distant future and flood the zone with like zero marginal cost content and. Um, I am not sure what that will do to the development process, but I, I have a feeling it won't be great. And it's going to put even more pressure on, on studios to just sort of churn out cheap, lowest common denominator stuff. And if you're looking to do that, like AI will be really great at taking a bunch of unstructured data and synthesizing it and making it clear that like five different things tend to be like relatively successful. Um, but I don't think that's great for creativity. Well, one of the things I've I've always said multiple times on podcasts, and people have heard me say this before, is the reason why I always, particularly the earlier years of Shekhar, spent so much time looking at newspapers is because I think it's predictive. It's not just interesting in its own right. It's predictive of what comes down the road. And mm -hmm. what we see with the internet with markets again and again and again and again is there is this split. There's a barbell effect where either you succeed by being cheap and small or, you know, in cheap and as far as your cost structure, or you succeed by being large and dominant and sort of overwhelming, you know, and, 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 and so you go to newspapers, for example, you can succeed 
at, with by being the New York Times, having the biggest brand. Actually, the New York Times is stronger than ever because it's more accessible and they've figured out a business model that fits and they dri- they still drive the national conversation like they did. It used to be the New York Times drove the conversation. You know, the famous saying was New York Times prints it in the morning. The evening news talks about it in the evening. Every newspaper in the country talks about it the next day, right? Like this sort of like waterfall effect. Now it just dominates right off the top, right? It becomes the, the topic du jour because everyone can get access to it immediately and it, it still retains a very strong sort of agenda setting role. And the internet has supercharged that. But mm-hmm. all those other newspapers that were trailing along, and their advantage was not timeliness, not agenda setting, but just access. That was the only newspaper that was accessible to most people in their geographic markets because you actually had to print the paper and deliver it to their doorstep. All those are struggling, out of business, are ad-laden, are just terrible, mostly make money from old people, and when they die, they're all screwed, right? Um, and meanwhile, so a site like Shashekri can succeed fantastically on the internet where I get the same access to everyone. My cost structure is super low, so I don't need a ton of people and, you know, can build a very nice business uh, that was not at all possible in the sort of previous sort of analog era. Now, text is cheap and easy. It's like you literally just type in a computer and you post it on a website. People can access it. I think you see the same effects over time for other media. It just takes time for the cost to come down. But as mm-hmm. the costs come down, you're going to see the same effects. And so HBO, I think, remains really, really valuable because they can still create content that resonates and breaks through and drives conversation. And you get this broad-based sort of effect. And you get this virtuous cycle where they make they they make a show, people talk about it, people read the reviews. Oh, I should jump that show. And streaming actually helps here because people can catch up. They can like, oh, you know, I'm going to jump in on on episode four. I get to quickly catch up and see what's going on. Now I'm locked in, and and you know that's that's a positive thing if you can break through, and if you want to make stuff super cheap, look at TikTok, look at YouTube. Like this is video content that people find compelling that they get and acquire for no cost. And that just eats up a ton and ton of time. And yeah, maybe some of that will be AI generated, but we have the same economic effects right now, which is user generated, right? And so Mm -hmm. the the area you're talking about is in many respects already here and it is flooding the zone. And so what suffers is everything in the middle where it costs money to make, but you don't get the virtuous cycle of something that breaks through. And that, and so people, you know, I love rom-coms. I love, you know, sort of the, the artistic sort of movie. That, I miss rom-coms. Yes. And yeah. mid-budget action movies. <laughs> all of the, all of the mid-budget stuff was like what I grew up on and it now just doesn't exist anymore. The internet breaks the economics of all that sort of stuff because all that stuff rested on geographic limitations and the like the 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 fact that it costs money to distribute content when your only mm-hmm. way to see a, a movie was to go to the theater and you've already seen the the big one like well let's check this movie out right and you have some movie they spent 20 million dollars on that makes 100 million dollars in the theater nice little business that model just kind of doesn't exist anymore and yeah. it's going to get worse before and if it ever gets better to be honest because you see this like this is we've talked about Dave Zaslav at at Time Warner. This is exactly all everyone's complaining. Oh, he's cutting all this sort of stuff. He's cutting all this stuff that is not worth the investment because it doesn't break through. And it's more expensive than just making filler, you know, home improvement shows. You know, and mm-hmm. and it's brutal. It's forced on them because they're huge debt load. But it is also very, very rational. And, you know, it came for print first. 
then it sort of came for for music to a certain extent and it's going to come for video and it might actually be worse for video than music music has the concert fallback where you can have sort Good of a point. niche band and you can make your money on the road. It's a brutal life. You're traveling everywhere and you're just stretching out a living, but it's still possible. Because, and what is the what is the concert? It's an in-person experience that is geographically constrained. It's not easily accessible. It's the fact it's not easily accessible that makes it valuable. And video, the whole middle may be completely hollowed out because there's nothing to sustain it in, in that aspect. It's a damn shame. Die Hard with a Vengeance was better than every single Marvel movie released for the past 15 years. And unfortunately, there's just not a market for Die Hard with a Vengeance anymore. Um, But maybe one day that'll change. I should be clear, though. AI will be able to pull in scripts from the past 40 years and take what was successful and synthesize it and make it clear that, you know, a handful of themes tend to resonate with audiences that will be crappy content at the end of the day. And and to your point, there will be a market for, you know, elite content that's actually produced by humans. But your but costs I think it's, are going to have to be aligned, right? That, exactly, that's going to be the real yeah. challenge. Like the, the key to strategy sort of things and the whole Substack thing and all that is your costs are low. You, you, you have to benefit from the internet in every aspect. The, the top line aspect is you can reach anyone in the world, right? So your, your addressable market is very large, but your costs have to also leverage the internet in that they're very low because you get that free distribution, all those sorts of things. If you end up in a situation with relatively high costs, like it's just very, very hard to compete because you're, you're in this situation where as soon as you don't break through once you're like bankrupt, right? Like it, it's <laughs> totally. This, this and this is also where subscriptions are compelling for co- for content creation because it gives you more freedom of movement to fail. Um, but but yeah, you have you have to keep that stuff you have to keep that stuff in order. I mean, so it, it it's kind of a bummer, but it it's this is what the internet does. It does it again and again and again and again. Uh, you're gonna see the same thing probably with jobs and and like if you're super differentiated and high end, uh, no problem. If a job can be moved to abroad or can be automated you're gonna have (laughs) the same sort of effects well we can't end on that grim note so one final question here no there's a lot of jobs that were predicated on geography and sort of i I know that you're right (laughs) that's what makes it even worse um yeah to be clear we're we're just we're We're not cheering for this objectively (laughs) analyze the world not say it's good or bad so Yeah. Uh, Max says, I'm looking to hear more about Ben's time at Wisconsin as I'm currently majoring in computer science there. Does he have any favorite memories from Wisconsin, a favorite place on campus, best bar? Also looking for suggestions on how to connect with others at UW, I guess UW, Wisconsin, (laughs) who listened to Stratechery as I remember hearing questions come from others at Wisconsin in previous episodes. So first and foremost, anyone who's listening at Wisconsin, email us and we can put you in touch with Max here. Hey, if you want to take uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Well, I don't know. How many Wisconsin listeners no, it's funny. can we possibly have? Uh, probably more than you think, to be honest. Okay, um, the, great. <laughs> I mean, this is actually interesting. I think one of the things I've underinvested in at Stratechery without question is sort of like community aspects and making it possible for folks to find each other and, and, and link together. And it's more a matter of it's not – I'm not very good at that, to be honest. And, you know, as far as the 
discipline of like cost structure that I, I just haven't invested that in terms of either time or, or money, like hiring someone to build a community X, Y, Z, but it is, I think a missed opportunity in some respects. And it, ideally it would be easy for him to sort of connect and figure this out. Um, so just well, you're also a, spread pretty thin. I mean, I, and I struggle with it too. I'm recording like podcasts every day, so it's hard to sort right. of Right, so I think, are you sure you want to take on the that? burden of, of connecting <laughs> back to his other uh, sticker readers? But I just I just want to acknowledge, I, I recognize that as an opportunity. Like, I do think it is an opportunity because you if you can tap into community, then you start getting, particularly, if you, you know, actually, this podcast has actually been very cool from me, from my perspective, and I was super skeptical of the mailbag approach, right? And just because I've always operated on the, look, I'm going to give you my opinion. You take it or leave it. You're like, I'll sell it for a fair price. You can pay it or not pay it or whatever it might be. And that's going to be a sort of a good relationship. And one of the things that's been really fun is having you on board who believed in this concept. And you're also the one that goes through the emails and right? like deals with it and picks up the show yeah. notes. But it's super fun, right? And it, and it it it's, it adds a component to my output that is totally different than anything I did before in a way that I think is very positive. And that's an example of how like it is valuable, right? We, we easily generate two shows a week because we have the users are actually playing. Yeah, no, exactly. It's like, there's a user generated component to our show where I'm not having to invest the time that I would to self generate a show, but can still produce something compelling because the users are like co-authors of, of this content. And so it's actually been, it's been eye-opening for me where I theoretically knew this was possible, but I underestimated and appreciated not just that it would be functional, but that it could be really good and fun and enjoyable to sort of produce. So that that's sort of a broad observation, and all the credit goes to you, um, Mr. Andrew Sharp. Now, I want Wisconsin memories. Yeah, hit yeah. Me. Uh, well, it's hard to say. Like, it's disconcerting how old I am. I mean, I graduated over 20 <laughs> years ago. Uh, so... One of the great things, I mean, I'm sure Wisconsin is not very pleasant right now because this is the the, the toughest time. The weather is pretty brutal. Uh, th- that That's not always fun. But I do think if you're into sports, like going to a big school with great sports teams, I think is super added to the experience. I went to every football game, every basketball game, my whole time there, like something to look forward to. It's on your schedule. Something to always talk about. Like, so that I, I obviously strongly endorse that. Even if you're not a fan, you were it, can, there. it can be very fun. The peak of the Ron Dane era was Ben's time. That's right. And I, I, the Ron Dane chant, I started, and no one gives me credit for this. Actually, half my friends don't. They actually none of my friends believe me. But damn it, I absolutely did. Uh, the <laughs> well, announcer wait, what would was always the go, chant? No, so every time Ron Dane, the, the announcer would go Ron Dane, and, and and so I started in the student section right after that. Ron Dane, and the, the whole it started the whole student <laughs> section. Every time after the announcer said it, they would echo it. And I promise awesome. you, I started that. No, well, no, I, no one believes me. Uh, I think our our audience is probably younger than we realize. So a lot of people they have don't no know idea who Ron Dane is. It's <laughs> like a 280-pound running back. Go look him up on YouTube. He was delightful. A staple of my childhood as well. A bowling ball, yeah, in, in physique and effect. Uh, so – uh, I do endorse sports. Obviously, Wisconsin has this big, heavy drinking bar culture, for better or worse. Uh, my bar of choice was the Plaza. Uh, the Plaza was a total dive bar. That's where sort of the – I mean, I was, I was involved in the student newspaper. That's where the newspaper and political people and, like, student government folks. Like, we were real nerds. Um, I, I think I've told this story before where we would have, like, protests, you know, because that was the thing to do is to have protests. And then afterwards – 
you know, we'd write stern editorials in favor of free speech against the protesters, and you know, they'd write letters to the editor, and then we'd all go to the plaza and drink together. Right? It was <laughs> it was definitely like peak peak LARPing uh, to a certain extent. Uh, but that that's mostly where I hung out. Uh, the um, I mean, I, I don't know, like, oh, I if you don't get a Wisconsin fish fry every Friday night, you are absolutely missing out. That should be a staple of your weekend experience. Uh, mm. there, there's multiple places to get it. Uh, but yeah, that was really the defined my arrow. I was, I, I, the, the paper back then, you know, being a foregone areas, like we published, there was two daily newspapers that published five days a week that were super competitive that made money. Like, and so we actually got paid. Uh, the reason I wow. picked the paper I worked at is because they actually paid their employees. Uh, and so that was super intense. Like you actually were in a newsroom. So I was usually there from 4 p.m. to 1 a.m. most days, and then we'd hit the pause afterwards. Uh, so the other... It, just the living. Other, <laughs> yeah, well, the other advice that I have, and this applies just in general, I changed my major multiple times. I would, like, reschedule every class it takes till I graduate. And at some point, I'm like, this is stupid. I'm just going to take classes with professors that I like and, you know, strongly favor, like, the seminars where there's only a few students. There's a lot of discussion. And that was, that was you know, a, a fantastic experience. Just took classes I never would have thought of otherwise. Uh, you really sort of got to dive into talk through really complex, interesting subjects. Um, probably less time and space to do that. If you're a CS major, on the other hand, you're probably going to graduate much more employable than I was as a political science major. <laughs> so there's pluses and minuses, but, uh, but you know, it worked out. It worked out in the end. Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure that I have a, a great articulation. Uh, probably a lot of stuff that is, makes for good stories and is tellable is stuff that maybe I choose to forget. Um, you know, <laughs> you never know what happens at, at, at various house parties, if it's along those lines, but that's part of the college experience. So, well, in addition to pioneering newsletters, Ron Dane, the chant at Wisconsin. Maybe you will look someone out there can add it to your Wikipedia. As soon as we publish this episode. So here's and- the problem. I am v- totally convinced that i started that it, 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 but the older you get the more you may tell yourself stories gets, right yeah. it, it, like maybe you, i just made this up in my head but i am pretty sure at the time because the problem is all my friends deny it they're like no you didn't that's ridiculous and i'm like no i absolutely did so i just want to be honest about i am convinced <laughs> that i did but none of my friends confirmed that so i don't want to overstate things you know and and you know the reality of being at wisconsin is it's not like you are in a completely appropriate state of mind for forming memories <laughs> when you're at these football games. of the experience, <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, I don't want to, like, glorify drinking, but that's just a reality at Wisconsin. There's a lot of it that happens, particularly on the weekends, uh, particularly, well, uh, you know, at, at, the, at the paper. So it is what it is. I went to school in puritanical Boston, and at 20 years old, I was dating a girl, briefly dating a girl who was at Wisconsin, went to visit her. And had three of the best days of my life in Madison. Um, and I left being like, was well, that was the greatest place on earth. We went to a hockey game, did all sorts of stuff, ate all kinds of horrible food. And there was drinking the entire time. A great weekend. I can't wait to visit you this summer in Madison to see whether, you know, my takes at 20 years old were right. And Madison is, in fact, the best place in the world. Um, for now though, except for, except for the end of January and early February. So good luck to Max <laughs> yeah. trudging, to, trudging to school in like the zero degree windshield. 
Uh, Thoughts and prayers to all the Wisconsin listeners who are going to email me in the next three days here. This is the time for our high school listeners. Luke Fickle, Wisconsin football is back, baby. <laughs> like, if you Enroll w- while you can. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Walk in. This is a rocket ship about to take off. Um, and on that note, we are going to come back later in the week. Email at sharptech.fm is the email address. We'd love to hear from you. And Ben, well, until if, later if you, in the week. If you like mailbag questions, uh, also Sharp China, email at sharpchina.fm. And basketball, greatest of all talk at gmail.com. There's a link in your show notes to add it to your podcast player. And this is the time to do it because the last episode last week was phenomenal. What top, mm. you know, top 10 percentile goat episode <laughs> uh, in part because with, you know, Ben delivered a few fantastic soliloquies that basically were admissions that Andrew was right. Uh, and so <laughs> I, I enjoyed them. You, I thought you were very gracious in not oh, yeah. acknowledging that was the case, but uh, great episode. If you want to get started, that's, that's a good one to get started with. Absolutely. A 20-minute lecture to Luka Doncic. So dive in (laughs) if that sounds appealing to you. (laughs) Um, All right. We're coming back later in the week. Ben, I will talk to you soon. Talk to you later. 